All righty. Good morning, everybody. How good it is to be gathered with the Lord's people this morning. Happy New Year. I have no idea on the appropriate social convention for how long we have to say that, um, but I haven't seen many of you yet in 2022, and so there you go. May it be your best one yet. May it be full of a fresh awareness of God's grace and of His love and of His truth. Today we start a five-week series that we have somewhat cheekily named Boomtown. I'll explain that in a second, but I first wanted to answer a question that I've had a few times over this last week, which is, hey, why do we break away from book studies a couple of times a year? I thought the Austin Stone went verse by verse, line by line through books of the Bible. Why, why do we do this sometimes? Well, truth be told, we've been doing it for a long time at the Stone. Our usual desire And our deep preference, trust me, this is the preference of every member of our preaching team, is to work through books of the Bible and we do that for the vast majority of our preaching calendar. But typically, across our history, in January and then again in August, September, we take a few weeks to work through some topical or vision-related matters. Here's a few things to keep in mind as we do that. Um, We don't know another way to teach other than expositionally. And so even when we teach topically, we're gonna do it in an expository fashion, right? And so it's not, hey, either are we gonna be working from the Bible or are we gonna be in a topic? It's, it's just, are we gonna let that particular text for that particular week dictate that topic or are we gonna teach that topic from another text? But it's always gonna be from the text. We aren't smart enough or perhaps not foolish enough to teach on topics without the text dictating what we ought to say about them. Uh, Secondly, we have to do this a couple of times a year because if you've noticed, vision leaks, right? And we're a distracted people. We've got so many things to look at and so we forget what we're about, we forget what we're supposed to be doing together and so we feel the need to regularly remind ourselves of why we are here and who we hope to be as a people. Uh, thirdly, uh, this, is, this is big for me as, as a pastor and as someone who preaches, you know, 25 times a year, something like that. We wanna be doers of the word and not just hearers as James instructs us. And, and these couple of windows in our calendar represent key moments when we have the opportunity uniquely to call people to very tangible actions in the life of our church, in the work in the city, and in our desire to see the peoples of the world reached with the gospel. So you're gonna hear some phrases over the next five weeks, right? At the Austin Stone, you have to make a little term out of everything, you can't just use the full words, right? It's like naming cars, you have to come up with ridiculous letters conglomerated together, right? And so you're gonna hear the term CTA, which means call to action. And this is a tangible disciple opportunity for us to say, okay, if the word says that, here's a call to action off the back of that. Here's some simple obedience that you can take. Because it would be a waste, wouldn't it? If we sit week after week under, you know, pretty good sermons, very good if Holem's preaching, right? But you sit week after week under those and you never actually do anything. Then we'd be hearers of the word and not doers of the word or so. Our hope therefore is that in the next five weeks, all of you would take one step of action. We're gonna give you five clear CTAs, calls to action over the next five weeks. We don't want you to try to take five, we want you to take one. And so over the next five weeks, just be praying, Lord, where is it that you wanna call me forward with one step of obedience into the life of community in this church? Okay, 
I hope that helps us to understand why we would break away and teach in this fashion. Why then would we use this key season in the calendar to teach a series called Boomtown, right? Well, now I was an English teacher and so I love the origins of words, right? Boomtown is actually a very old word. It's become kind of hip and trendy today, but it's an old word developed originally to describe the rapid growth of urban centers in England and in Western Europe as those communities were transformed and, and changed irrevocably by the, by the Industrial Revolution. It was later used to describe the rapid growth of settlements in the United States, first on the East Coast and then exploding westward with the gold rush. Most recently, it has been quite famously co-opted by Austin's second favorite South African son, or perhaps by their second favorite South African supervillain, Elon Musk, who used it to describe his vision of the future of this city and surrounds, which we now find ourselves in. It was then picked up as an editorial series by KVU, and it's used in excited discussions in hushed tones by venture capitalists looking to make a lot of money off of this boom. And it's used again in hushed tones as a fearful pejorative by many who have lived in this place for any length of time. Because you felt it, right? Our city has changed. And while some of it is super exciting, it presents many opportunities to be sure, I also know that a lot of it is terrifying and perhaps even damaging to those who can find themselves on the wrong side of its very steep growth curve. Uh, the 2020 census revealed what we all actually clearly knew in the decade preceding that. The Austin Metro, which includes some surrounding towns and counties, was the fastest growing metro in the US of those with a population of over a million people. And it wasn't close, the gap between first and second, with the population of our metro growing a staggering 30% from the year 2010 to 2020. Now, if you know anything about city growth, you know that that is astonishing, slightly alarming, and completely unsustainable, right? That rate of growth, it introduces many rich opportunities and it's fraught with risk. Uh, two counties in the metro were in the top four for national county growth numbers. Hayes County, I don't know if we've got anyone representing that here, they were number one with over 50% growth. And Williamson County was fourth with over 40%. Such opportunity and such risk and such danger. Austin over that same period scored as one of the worst in the country for cost of living increases, right? You felt it, you felt it. And a lot of that has to do with what our property market has done. Again, I know many for whom that growth has been positive. And I also know many for whom that growth has been extremely damaging. It presents massive barriers to entry into the housing market for those trying to get in. Uh, it creates a huge strain for those trying to stay in the market as their property taxes increase to points that land up being crippling to them, right? And they feel like every day they get less and less in return for those property taxes. This is all in a city that has a dearth of affordable housing options, right? It's very difficult to find those kind of options and you can feel the pressure that it creates for many in our city if you're paying attention anyway. Not just that, but it feels like the city has changed vibe too, right? When we came here, it was all like, keep Austin weird. Now it's like just Google bros, right? And it's like, the thing has just changed 
so much, right? They used to say, we love Austin, don't move here, right? All right? But they did, and they moved in their numbers, and it feels like it's changed vibe. I was first exposed to the city of Austin with the 1993 cult movie, Dazed and Confused, right? Which was filmed here, all right, all right, all right. That's where it comes from, right? And so it was filmed here, and, and I watched that movie, I was like, what is this crazy tiny town? Right? And then by the time I moved here, it wasn't a crazy tiny town. It was kind of a crazy, slightly bigger town. Still crazy, but changing dramatically. Why? New people bring different ideas, different norms, different values, different ideologies. And I've spoken to many of you who have expressed that you have found some of that shift in ideology and value and trend in the city quite distressing and fearful for you. I understand it. You can feel it in local government and the debates we have there. You can feel it in school district board leadership if you're brave enough to be involved there. You, I can feel it in the suburbs where I live in neighborhood yard signs, which have to be the most passive aggressive mode of virtue signaling that mankind has ever invented, right? But I've noticed just in our neighborhood, the yard signs have gone from passive aggressive on one side to passive aggressive on the other side. And I start to realize, oh my goodness, my neighborhood has changed, right? And for some, again, they would say, thank God, right? And others would go like, help us God, right? It's not the same for everyone. It is an exciting, and a deeply confusing place to live. I can't believe the changes that I've observed here over the four short years that we have lived here. And I now feel like a long timer, right? I feel like an Austin permanent because when I meet people in my neighborhood, they're like, how long have you been here? I'm like, four years. They're like, man, you're like a local, right? And I'm like, because they've been here four minutes, right? And, and seeing the city in a totally different light. The sentiment that I used to feel amongst Austinites here and Austinites in the church was, oh, we love Austin, right? We love Austin, don't move here. We love it, right? And our church, our church loves the city of Austin. That's part of the DNA of the Austin Stone. Now in my pastoral engagements and even just in my friendships, you know what I hear a lot of? Man, I'm just here for work, right? This is just growth opportunities here and I'm here for that, right? I hear a lot of people saying, I don't know how to love this city anymore, it's changed. I don't know how to love it, I don't know how to serve it. I hear a lot of people saying, this city isn't what it used to be. And so how is the church supposed to respond in the midst of a societal boom? Well, for us at the Austin Stone, where we too have experienced a lot of change as a church over the last few years, we wanted to lean back into something that we have always actually believed about the church's relationship to the city in which we find ourselves. In the 19 years that the stone has been in existence, one of our foundational beliefs about city engagement is that the church is supposed to be for the city. Our founding pastor wrote a book with that title. And so please, please, please email me this week, but don't email me asking me why we're taking a new direction, because <laughs> that's not true. He literally wrote the book that said, for the city. What does that mean? It means we are not just with the city. We're not just going wherever the city goes, right? We're not just following the flow of the tide. We're not just going, oh, this is cool. Let's see where this lands up. We're not following the city's ethic, morality, um, ideologies, none of that, no. But we are not supposed to be against the city, right? Opposing the city, even when she's trying to do good things for human flourishing. 
But we're also, listen, not supposed to just be in a city, consuming passively, right? My job here is really cool. I'm making a lot of money on the property market. And so I'm just here to take what I can get. I like running around Ladybird Lake or whatever it's called, Town Lake. Um, and, and I like being down there and it's kind of hip and the donuts are good um, and the breakfast tacos are awesome, right? Um, they starch on starch. You got starch and then you fill it with potatoes. Fantastic, brilliant way to start the day, especially with a New Year's resolution, right? And then you need a four hour nap and then you're good to go, right? I love all these things about this city, but I'm not serving it in any way. No, that's not all. We're not called to be passive consumers of a vibe within a city. The church has always been called where it finds itself to be a city within the city that houses it. We are called to be a city within the city of Austin where we love and serve the city around us, but we love and serve it in a set apart and peculiar way where we are undeniably the called people of God. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. And we live in such a way in the midst of the city that, that the rest of the city finds us truly peculiar, like a blessed nuisance. The city should look at us and go like, there's no doubt that they're blessed, right? Look at God's presence amongst them. But they're kind of a nuisance because they won't just go with us. There's no doubt that they're blessed because look at how they serve the poor. Look at how they, they, they reach people with human flourishing in our city. They're so blessed, but they're kind of a nuisance because they won't bow to our ethic. <laughs> in, but not of, right? Look at what Jesus said to his followers as he was inviting them into a new sort of community assembled in his name. And it's worth noting, listen friends, let's not look back at the early church and say like, yeah, but they had, they had it simple, right? Jerusalem was an easy city to be a believer in. No, 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 it was not. This group found themselves in a rapidly changing and confusing time in history with massive and alarming Roman expansion changing all of their known environments. And Jesus says to them in the midst of that, Matthew 5, 13, you, you, this ragamuffin bunch of nobodies, and look what they are, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way. So just like those examples, let your light shine before others. So that, what's the end goal? They may see your good works, a people of action within a city and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, that's phenomenal. This isn't an impressive group, right? You've got Peter sitting there, you've got Thomas sitting there, you've got a bunch of strugglers and doubters and wrestlers and Jesus says to them, you're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. You know what you do? You bring flavour out of the bland. You preserve goodness where there's decay. You're the salt of the earth. But salt is only useful if it's distinct from the food that it's put into. You need to be able to taste the difference, but it has to be put into it. It can't just sit in a bowl next to the food and hope that it does its preserving work over there. It can't. It has to be infused into what it is trying to cure and, and season and flavour. He says, you're a light by which others lost in darkness can feel the safety and warmth of the illumination of truth. But guess what? Light is no good if it's hidden. It doesn't help anybody. Otherwise, nobody can see the light and they can't be outside of the house. Otherwise, they serve no good to the house. Uh, my daughter Katie doesn't love the dark, right? And so she's fearless of almost everything else, but the dark she doesn't love. 
And so at night when she asked, Daddy, can you leave a light on? What good would it be if I go to the front of the house and turn a light on outside and say, is that better? And she's like, no, I can't see it, right? It hasn't changed this in any way, shape or form. In the same way, the church can't be hidden away from those who need to see the light from the darkness. Now listen, this is a tension for the people of God. We are a people who are in the environments that God has sent us into, but we must be a people who are not of those environments. Jesus prayed this exact thing for us, that we'd be a people of this living tension. In John 17, it's one of my favorite prayers, that Jesus praying to the Father for us. And look what he says, John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you, he says to the Father. His race is nearly run. He's going back to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they have my joy fulfilled. They may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This prayer is for your good. Listen, it's for your joy, Jesus says. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Oh my goodness, what? There should be a measure of otherness. If you obey the world, there will be a response and a backlash of hatred. I see people today like, oh, what has the world come to? I'm like, no, no, this has always been the deal. If you obey the book, there will be some who hate you. It's always been that way. Uh, so, so, so why would this be? Because they are actually not of the world. We're not just of our environment, just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. But then look at this, this is key, friends. Just dial in for a second, I know it's a lot this morning. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Man, Jesus' prayer for us isn't that we would jet out into our own community, right? He's not like, you know what you guys need? big piece of land, right, out west, and go hide there, and you can marry your cousins, and it's all gonna be fine, right? And you just hunker down, you choose a time and a space, and you lock that in as the most moral way to live, and you keep yourself preserved, right, with your preserves, until He returns. That's the role of the church. But friends, some of us actually view church that way. I wanna just be with a bunch of like-minded people who conserve some values together and we just stay here and we just batten down the hatches and one day Jesus will come and take us all out of here. He says, no, no, please, Father, don't take them out of the world. Here's my prayer instead, that you keep them from the evil one. I wanna keep them in there, but they must be distinct. They must remain as the people of God. Look at what he prays. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so what? sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then this remarkable statement, it's truly remarkable if you think about it. If you're wondering what the purpose of your life is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are God's sent ones on missionary assignment to the city of Austin. You might say, well, how do you know I'm on missionary assignment to the city of Austin? You're in the city of Austin. You're here right now by God's good grace and purposes, which means you are His sent one as He sent the Son to be the light and salt. So He sends us in the same way. You might go, oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Well, if we believe what Paul says in Acts 17, 26, then there's the real sense in which we have to say that God oversees the times and the places of our lives. And so there's a real sense in which you find yourself in this area in 2022, not just because of work opportunity or family decisions or city coolness or lack of opportunity elsewhere. You are here because God sent you here. Did you hear me? 
You are here because God sent you here. He sent you here to be salt and to be light and to live in this place as a sanctified resident alien who represents an outpost of the heavenly city. You are sent here as an ambassador who serves this city by representing your real and eternal city of origin and your ultimate destination. What a cool assignment is that? You can't believe this and be bored in church community, you just can't. You see, the problem is we just forget. And so how do we do this, right? That sounds like quite a grandiose assignment, like we're here to have a massive influence on a culturally upstream city. And can I just be honest, uh, I've been in ministry now for nearly 17 years. I think in the church we gave into some hubris and unbridled ambition in churches over the last 20 years. We rediscovered our love for cities, good, and then we made it our mandate, like we are here to change the city, right? And Jesus is like, mm. That's the role of the municipality and local government, right? You're here to be salt and light, which means some will hate you, some will love you, but be salt and light, that's your role. That's your role. Sometimes it will have big, massive societal impact. Sometimes it will have very little. Leave the impact to him, right? Live as the people of God. And so when we speak of being for the city, we don't do so just so that we can speak boldly of transforming this place, but rather, how can we ourselves be a distinct people who are in but not of the city of Austin, as Jesus clearly called us to be? Well, that's what we're gonna explore over the next five weeks together. How do we love God and the church and this city and the nations of this world as a peculiar and set apart people in Austin in 2022? We wanted to start this morning with a seemingly small step. If you're tracking, you might go like, Wait, is that the end of the introduction? That's the end of the introduction. <laughs> it's going to feel too undramatic for many of you, this step, because some of you are like, all right, I'm sent, let's go. What's the, what's the first hill I can, I can take? Let's go do this thing, right? It's called Mount Bernal, it's a little hill. You can go take that one, no one's guarding it, and it's not that big, right? You can walk to the top. Um, where can we go storm the Bastille, right? Where can we take this? Now I'm gonna ask you to consider a very small thing today. Here it is, you ready? To be a church, that is for the city, we first need to be a people who are for the local church. To be a church that is for the city, we will first need to be a people who are for the local church. I know the local church is a very unglamorous thing, a seemingly powerless thing when it comes to serving a city, and I know that history and indeed current experience shows us that local churches aren't really helping themselves reputationally, right? We don't really all have the reputation for faithfulness, and fruitfulness, there's some podcasts about this, but friends, as I read the scriptures, as I read the scriptures, I cannot help but conclude that God remains committed. He remains committed to the idea of a local community of believers who live lives of holiness and service and countercultural love, gathering together regularly, submitting to the Word of God together, participating in the ordinances through which we remember Christ's work and giving themselves away to each other in a posture of other-centered humility. Whether we like it, or not, that throughout history and from the scriptures is the avenue that God uses to advance His kingdom and the primary avenue that God uses to sanctify His people and to conform them increasingly into the image and likeness of His Son. I've always resonated deeply 
with what Eugene Peterson said about the church. Some of you are going like, Ross, I don't like the church. I'm like, I feel you, right? right? I get it. Peterson said, there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church. But he went on to say, but there's no other place to be a Christian <laughs> except the church. This is God's primary method for the expansion of the kingdom amongst the nations and for the sanctifying of his people. It's what he uses to make you more like Christ. Listen, what does a booming city need from us? A booming city needs first and foremost, a devoted church. Maybe the most radical thing you can do for the city of Austin today is to commit yourself fully to a local church. We don't really know how to do this in part I know because we've seen abuses of leadership power, which leads us to reserve trust for communities, but also in part, listen friends, because we've actually bought into a Western weird modern religious system in which church exists not really as a family as it's described in the word, or even as some kind of supernatural community, but rather we view the church crassly, I'm gonna say this bluntly, but as a peddler of religious goods and services which we can consume when we want and which we can dismiss when we don't want. Oh, and it's good, I'll take those services that you offer, but when you don't offer particular services to me that I would like you, I'm out. I'm done, it's an easy trade. It's concierge Christianity, it's not Christian community. Look at the example of the early church. You remember, we're in the midst of a major societal change and who lived with significant stresses and strains, societally, economically, relationally, politically, all of it. In the midst of all of that, the first messengers of the resurrection, right? And the only custodians of how that message could get out, what did they give their energies to? Look at it, Acts 2, 42, you all know it. They devoted themselves. Of all the things they could do, what do you expect that verse to say next? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to what? To a local church, to a community of former strangers. Why? So that they could be taught together to live life with one another, to enjoy communion and baptism together, to carry each other's burdens in prayer. Isn't that great? That's what they devoted themselves to. How would you describe your relationship to the local church? If you're a follower of Jesus, would it be said of you, of us, that you, that we have devoted ourselves to a local expression of Christ's body? As a pastor in God's church, right? There's parts of being a professional Christian that I really hate. But as a pastor in God's church, I feel a constant tension. The tension that I feel, especially in the suburbs, which is you know, primarily the locus of my ministry, it's where by God's grace and God's divine sovereignty, I've had to do most of my work. It wasn't my choice. But the constant tension is that people actually want this kind of concierge experience rather than a church community. They want the church as some kind of corporation to give them stuff rather than a community of sinners as it actually is. 
And they think that in the delivering of those services, they will find joy. And they think in the delivering of those services that they receive, they will be able to become more Christ-like. And it doesn't work. And so then what do we do? We go to another one (laughs) that we think has better goods and services. And we take from those ones and it doesn't work. And so what do we do? We go to another one. Now you have to realize that we uniquely do this. Why? Because we have so many churches. In the early church, they're like, which other one? What what are you talking about, right? We're all doing the same thing. Now listen, I don't say that in condemnation. I say that in confession. Because as a leader, I'm tempted continually to provide that kind of concierge Christianity experience because it works in the world's eyes. It will grow numbers. You'll get the great measurables of the Western church, attendance and finances. And it's convenient in all of the ways that we're used to from all of our other service providers. And I don't think it's the way of Christ. But God's design, The church doesn't work like that. You know the one thing that the church cannot be? It cannot be some kind of casual affiliation based on shared interests that are temporary. It cannot be that. The church was always a community of enemies who unite under one truth claim. Jesus Christ is Lord. They had nothing else in common. Uh, Read the New Testament. What's most of what Paul's trying to do? Please get along. Please get along. Please get along, right? Slave owners and slaves. Please, guys, you've got to find a way. You're united. You're on the opposite end of this great unjust division in society, but you both believe Jesus is Lord. Figure it out, right? Eutychus and Syntyche, please get along. Figure it out. Let's make this thing work. Come on, let's, let's go figure it out. Stop having these divisions, he tells the people in Corinthians. Why? Because they weren't united by anything but by Jesus. He was the only one who united them. All right, how? Well, they practiced simple communal modes of Christian obedience. We have hyper-individualized our walk with Jesus Christ. And it's never the way that it's described in the scriptures. Look at how Paul, as I close, describes Christian obedience in community to the church in Rome. Just so you know, as I close is a relative term. It's a runway, right? It's got some space to it. It might be short, it might be long, but I'm committed to closing and I'm committed to beginning that process. But where that process will end, the Lord alone knows, all right? And so we'll walk down it and see how long it takes. But Paul describes to the community in Rome what Christian obedience together looks like. Now now, now remember, the church in Rome, they're living in one of the biggest and most demanding boom towns of all time, right? Being a Christian in Rome was not easy. And so you had these communities of people who were politically opposite, absolutely opposite, hated each other, and yet both believed that Christ is Lord, now they're breaking bread together, right? And they never said, you know what, I wanna find a community where my political allegiance lines up. They said, no, no, I need to submit my political allegiance to the fact that this brother also says Christ is Lord and I break bread with him. And that's first and foremost, and that's what forms our community, not like-minded people. They didn't go, hey, I got kids who are like 10 and 12. I need churches with people whose kids are between 10 and 12. 
And so I'm gonna to go to a church where the pastor's kids are between 10 and 12, because the way that works is the age of the pastor's kids, those ministries are the best in the church, right? Anyone notice that? No, okay, just me. Um, that, that's the way it works out. And so we'll go there and we'll be there and we'll be like-minded, be wonderful, and we'll all deal with the same issues and we'll agree until we discover that we don't agree with something, because suddenly a pandemic comes up and now we disagree over masks or over vaccines. And now I don't think these are my people anymore. And so what do I have to do? Now I have to go to another group of people who agree with me on masks and vaccines and my circle gets so small, so tiny that I never engage anyone who disagrees with me and I find it impossible to obey the way that the Scriptures tell me to walk out faith in community because everyone is just like me and I don't become any more like Christ. Friends, forgive my passion and fervor this morning. I was telling Andy this morning, I've been ministering to people who are upwardly mobile for 17 years in environments that have lots of churches and the way we do church does not work. We're forming fantastic country clubs, but struggling to conform people to the image and likeness of Christ. All right, look at what Paul says to the church in Rome. In the first two verses of Romans 12, he says that this is what it'll take to live as faithful aliens in your culture. This is what it means to live as in but not of your culture, right? The renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. Then look what he says, verse three. For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Look at what Paul says. He says, hey, firstly, you have to obey this in community. You can't obey any of these commands that he's gonna give on your own. They're all in the plural. They all take a community to obey. But what he's saying is, hey, in a city where people's worth is gonna be measured by how successful you are and how quickly you lift yourself up above others. Those devoted to the community of God practice gospel-fueled humility and sober assessment of themselves. How do you do that? Well, you remember that you are a sinner and you're in a community of sinners and you're transparent with your sins so that you know you're in a community of sinners. This is what we do in church. We pretend we're not a community of sinners. We're like, thank goodness, I used to be a sinner. Now. So good, I mean occasionally, I don't have a full quiet time. And I confess that, please forgive me brother, right? And in secret, repulsive lives of rebellion, right? Just never tell each other and then go like, why do I feel lonely? Because you've never allowed anyone to engage you as you actually are, in humility, in weakness, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, able to view yourself with sober judgment and free to do it because you know that even though you are a sinner, you're forgiven by Christ and so you've got nothing to hide. You see, <laughs> who wouldn't wanna be part of that? It'll be messy as all get out, right? Like, oh man, you did that again? I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Look what he goes on, verse four. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, oh my goodness, members of one another. How many of you view other congregants in the church like that? I'm a member of them, they're a member of me. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Oh, I love this, look at this. Everyone's got something to bring in this kind of community. 
and in a city that's gonna celebrate and elevate remarkable individual gifts and accomplishments, the people of God, how do they live differently in that city? They radically share their lives with each other and they see themselves as members of one another and not individual entities of self-determination as we are so prone to think. It's wild. Everyone doing their bit with what God has given them. No one getting praise or credit above another. Can you imagine? I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his incredible book, Life Together. He says, the church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. It is not in the former, but in the latter that is the lack. But no shortage of superstars. We have a shortage of faithful brothers and sisters who serve Christ and each other together. Paul goes on, oh my goodness, here we go. Verse nine, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is amazing. 13 exhortations in three verses and not one of them is possible to obey on your own. Every single one of them is stated in the plural. It's not about just this individualistic walk, right? It's about a community pursuing this stuff together. And what do they have to pursue together? Love has to be genuine. You can't pretend to be someone that you're not, but together you have to pursue holiness. Listen, your holiness isn't just about you. It impacts and affects people around you. It's about your family of faith. And so what do you do? You love. And not just down deep in your heart, as I'm prone to do, I love you. And as Kevin often says, well, like tell your face, right? Because it doesn't feel like you do. What does Paul say? Love with affection as brothers and sisters so that others know that you love them. Show honour, outdo one another in it. That's an instruction straight from the scripture. When someone does well, you know what you should say? You did great. That doesn't diminish you. That builds up the community. Be zealous and fervent servants. He says, others will catch it. Friends, do people catch zeal from you in community? Or do they catch skepticism and critique and sarcasm? Paul says, no, 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 let's, let's live with zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. He says, some of us are slothful in zeal, friends, because it's easy to be cool. Cool and aloof, that's easy. Full of zeal, that's tougher. That's the call though. Suffer well, pray continually. People will learn from it. Help others, have strangers in your home because in so doing, you will teach others what community actually is. Friends, how much of that would you go like, yeah, that's my life in community right now? Paul goes on, I'm nearly done. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, what a verse. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Before you log into social media, recite this verse. So far as it depends on you, some people are gonna pick fights you can't get out of, but so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with everyone. Don't go looking for it, right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then down to verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. Oh, friends, imagine we lived life like this in community. You know why all of these instructions were necessary for the church in Rome? Because they couldn't get along. They were natural enemies united by Christ. They had no idea how to get along on some kind of mutual affinity outside of that. You know what? We never see Paul instructing a church ever. We never see him saying, man, you know what you guys should do? You should find a place that meets every one of your needs in every stage of your life with people who are exactly like you. And when you can't, then you should go down the road to another local church that works better for you. That's what you should do. I'm persuaded that Paul would be absolutely mortified by what we have made of the local church. Friends, if we're gonna be salt and light in a booming city, then we're gonna need to commit to being a biblical community of believers, doing life together, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching together, devoting ourselves to fellowship, it's costly, devoting ourselves to the Lord's Supper together, that means together, right? And devoting ourselves to the prayers. So today we're asking you to consider taking one step forward in commitment to a local community. It's needed for many of you. You're on the fringes, you know it. And it isn't where you wanna be in church community. Now listen, let me say this. This is not about the stone. I would love nothing more than for you to be convicted by the Holy Spirit to take a, a proper step towards genuine community at the Austin Stone today. I love this church or I wouldn't be here, right? But listen, if it isn't with us, then let it be somewhere else, but let it be on the basis that there is a community that you think will conform you to the image and likeness of Christ, not because there are people there who are like you, but because there are people there who are unlike you and are radically committed to pursuing Christ together. I will drive you there myself. We have no interest in building up numbers. We wanna see the church being the church. And so friends, whether it's here or someone else, somewhere else, throw yourself into it. There are so many great local churches in this city. Don't just spectate. Don't consume, it doesn't work. I know it feels better, but it doesn't work. So listen, as I close. Some of you are on the fringes of community and it's actually our fault. We messed up. We failed, we broke trust. I have no doubt that is true for some of you. You've tried to connect and we have failed and I am so desperately sorry. Really, I am, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to just apologize in person. We mess up all the time, we're trying to get better. Please try again. Please come talk to us, see how we can serve you better. Some of you are on the fringes because you flat out just don't trust us. You like the worship experience, maybe you like some of the preaching, but you don't really trust the leadership or, or you know, how the church is formed. That may be valid and it may not. Again, I would encourage you, the answer is to engage. And if you can't trust the leadership of this community, then find one that you can. Let us help you do that and then devote yourselves there. But some of you, some of you aren't being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ in community and you feel it, you're on the fringes. And it's actually because you've adopted an unhealthy and unhelpful view of the church. Repent of that today. There's so much mercy, there's so much grace. And then today, just devote yourself to the family of God. It'll be undramatic, 
It'll be unspectacular. We won't make instant fruitful yields in the city. Hardly anyone will notice. But we'll be following our King together. Jesus sends us, even us, to be the salt, to be the light, to be the people of God for the good of this great booming city. Will you join us? Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you use your word today to encourage us, convict us, change us when necessary, console us. Where there's hurt in church community, oh Lord, I know what that feels like. It hurts so bad. I pray that maybe today would be the beginning of a redemption of that hurt. Father, where there's a misunderstanding of what the church actually is, open our eyes. Help us to commit to it. Help us to not try play the game where we try to just balance this with the rest of our lives, but where we center ourselves on a community of faith, where it could be said of us like it was said of the church in Acts 2, we devoted ourselves. We devoted ourselves, not for the name of this local church, but so that these people might together in community might be conformed increasingly more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. One day he's coming back, Father, and we cannot wait. And he's coming back for his bride, for his church. And I cannot wait for that great assembly. What a day it will be. In the meanwhile, let us practice in little faithful local gatherings of faith together with people not at all like us, but people who together with us can proclaim that Jesus is King until He comes. It's in His name we pray. Amen.